Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Welcome to RUF. I'm glad y'all are here. Katie, thanks for reading more bizarre words from the Old Testament and strange proper nouns and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we're reading Judges this quarter. If you're new here, um, you're gonna, you might think like, wow, this is weird to walk into the middle of a series of Judges. No, it's actually weird to be in this series the entire time. It's bizarre every single week, so don't worry. Um, but the book of Judges is this kind of interesting thing where you just see God and His people relate on this, very, on this cycle of they fall into sin and sin always leads to slavery. And once it leads to slavery, they always, this is just a helpful um, tool, they always make supplication. They cry out to God, and then God sends salvation. And so it really is that cycle of sin, slavery, supplication, salvation we see over and over again as um, they fall and God does His work. And every week there are kind of different details in each story with each judge, and those details kind of give us a different lesson from each week. And uh, let's pray with me now, and then we'll consider the lessons from this passage. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for these stories, and I pray that you would be with us as we consider them. We need you to teach us from these places, Father God, to soften our hearts to what you have in store for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, One of the things I do in this job, actually the thing I enjoy doing more than anything else, is hanging out with y'all and talking. Uh, about life, about what's going on in your life, about questions you have, sharing my life with you, my family's life with you. Um, and as I thought about that, and I would, and if you're new here, I would love to grab a cup of coffee or lunch with you or something. If you have questions about this, that's I would love to talk to you about anything. Uh, so grab me afterwards. But I find that, and having done this now for, uh, this is my 11th year in campus ministry, is that there are two fundamental things we always talk about. Uh, We always talk about uh, relationships, right? And we always talk about decisions you have to make. Always talking about personal connections that you have and always talking about how are you supposed to live. Uh, The connections are always talking about friendships, right? We talk about roommate situations. You talk about being lonely, not having friendship, problems with your friends, or sometimes enjoying your friends. I talk about boyfriend and girlfriend stuff all the time, right? And talk about the lack of that sometimes, talk about the friction within that, sometimes talk about how fun it is. Talk about parents, right? Good and bad things about your relationship with your parents. Uh, How they were good, how their love was performance-based, or how they were emotionally absent, all kinds of different things. And those are all questions of connection, personal connection, relationships. And whether or not you've articulated it, the reason that we talk about relationships all the time is because you are made for connection. We are made in God's image. He is a Trinitarian communal God. We are made to be connected to each other and to God. And we are made for all kinds of different awesome connections. Father-child, parent-child connections, brother-sister connections, lover connections, uh, all that kind of stuff. And so we're sorting through them and I talk about that a lot. But the other thing we talk about all the time is also what do you do? How do you act? How do you make decisions? 
right? These are questions of instruction. If the first one, there are conversations about connection, these are questions of or conversation of instruction. Uh, how, do I go th- how do you go through your schoolwork? How do you make decisions about your career? You have to get all these details, and you're constantly weighed down. Like, it's really important to make the right decisions and not the wrong decisions, because right decisions lead to the good life. Wrong decisions lead to kind of a less desirable life. And the problem with this question, of course, is that when we think about questions of instruction, how am I supposed to live? Uh, unfortunately, we increasingly think about that with a capitalistic worldview. Capitalism is less and less simply an economic principle and more and more a worldview because we think, well, the most important decisions I have in life are how am I going to kind of parlay my talents into the job I want. And that's really the, that's the good life. And so most of our conversations, unfortunately, are about that. I'll talk about that with you as well, but I don't think that's the most important conversation. But when you think, what kind of decisions do I need to make in order to flourish, you start thinking about schoolwork and work and jobs, right? Whereas really the question of how shall I live and what kind of decisions should I make, those should have been character questions and morality questions, right? And we've, because we've actually failed to see, and actually I suspect all of us have actually seen but failed to acknowledge, that there are really unhappy people who are at the top of their career field. And there are also happy people who are at the bottom of their career field. Which leads us to the idea that maybe the questions of how should I act should have less to do with economic decisions about, and career decisions, and maybe more to do with questions about wisdom and about character. And about virtue. But nonetheless, I just kind of want to draw out that idea that there are two big questions. Are questions of relationship and questions of how to live. Questions of connection and questions of instruction. And, you, you know, in one sense you could say you chose an instruction school. Right? You, to be successful, you have to go to a school that's going to teach you how to be successful in this world. That's why at Stanford relationships are weird and people don't date. People didn't come here for connection, right? This is why hookup culture manifests itself here is actually because our souls are still screaming for connection, but our idol of achievement doesn't give us the time for connection. So we literally get like an intense hit of it every now and then so we can feel human again. That's why that happens here. Before I worked here, I actually worked at a school that was concerned with connection. People didn't care about grades. They wanted to hang out. Guess what they did? This is going to really frustrate you all. You've heard this before. They hung out a ton, and it was awesome. Right? (laughs) They didn't study, and they had like a 2-2, and they were like having a good time. That happens. Actually, for way more of the population than you think. (laughs) They had big groups of friends. They dated a lot. It was fun. They spent... Here's, and here's the reality of it. Neither one of y'all are more or less happy than the other. Right? In parenting, uh, when, if you talk to counselors, therapists, and psychologists, they tell us that those are the fundamental two things you need from a parent. That you need connection and instruction. Uh, love and guidance. Intimacy and correction. You need to hear from your parents. One, one counselor said this. He said, the two things you have to tell your children, you can file this one away for later, here are the two things your children need to hear from you. I love you, and you cannot have your way. I love you, and you can't have your way. Your children need to hear from you. And what we need to hear from our parents is, you are mine, and I love you so much, and let me show you how to be a wise person that makes good decisions. I will never stop loving you, but that was a dumb decision. Right? And our parents, just like our schools, can err to one side or the other. Maybe we had connection parents. We felt really connected to them and intimate with them. But they didn't offer a lot of guidance. 
This is a lot of times a a problem for affluent and liberal-minded parents, right? And it makes sense that if Stanford accumulates uh, the children of liberal-minded and affluent parents, that this would be a culture obsessed with finding mentors. Why are you all obsessed with finding mentors? Because you want to find an older person who will tell you how to live. Right? Because your parents are like, I want you to become your own person, make your own decisions. I love you so much. You felt very connected to them, but you came here craving mentors because you knew you needed instruction. Right? On the other hand, they're also instruction parents. Children to be seen, not heard, miniature adults, there are a lot of different ways. You, you have this intense sense of the way things are supposed to be in life, but you have this intense emotional distance from your parents. We also make these two errors in the way we conceive of God. Right? There's, there's the instruction, God, your, your verse is, Be holy there because I am holy. God is holy. He has called us to live a new and different way. He wants you to behave. And what that leaves us wondering, if that's the only way we conceive of God, is you keep wondering, have I experienced God's love? Can I experience God's love? I know there's a right way to live. You're not sure if He loves you or if He's going to continue to love you, but His law has got to be insisted upon. You know that you can learn morals from Christianity, but is there life-giving, powerful rest and assurance that your Heavenly Father loves you in your life. And maybe you didn't grow up with that kind of Christianity, maybe you didn't grow up in the church, but that's how you conceive of Christianity, that's what you've seen, right? And you're like, I'm not interested in that at all. And so you've rejected that form of Christianity, when in fact that's not a clear picture of who God is. It's the God who's unfairly caricatured as being about instruction but not connection. But then there's the other kind of Christianity where God's all about connection, but He doesn't butt in our life. Right? Your verse is, for God so loved the world. He just loves us in the way you know He loves us, that He never challenges us, and He validates us, and He doesn't correct you or instruct you. And the few times you want His advice is on things like jobs and whether or not you should marry this person that you're dating for a while. Right? But when He speaks in areas that He's spoken clearly on things like moral issues and wise living, you're kind of like, well, that's not my God. And you might not have grown up and Christianity as well, and you, that's the kind of Christianity you've seen. So you're standing out on the outside, and you're like, the Christians are all about this God is love thing, and that's great that that works for them. But since it obviously has no bearing on changing their life, I can live the same way as them without having to deal with God. So I'm glad it works for them. We're basically the same person, whatever. And so you're not interested in it, because it has no bearing on their lives. Right? Judges is the story of God the Good Father. He loves His children. And love is connection and intimacy. And love is instruction and the way of living rightly. And those things can't be separated. The words that actually provide the whole foundation of God's plan for redemption are articulated first in Genesis 12. When God calls Abraham, He says, Here's my plan for my people. I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing to the nations. I'm going to love you and teach you how to love. I'm going to give myself to you and I'm going to show you how to live in the world. Connection and instruction. Love and how to be. Relationship and guidance. They're inextricably linked and you can't have one without the other. And what's happening in Judges is that God, the good Father, is loving His children with instruction. With correction, in fact. Some instruction is positive. Some of it is discipline, right? 
So we find Israel at it again. Verse 10 and 11 summarize their sin. This is the same story. Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. God summarized it. I said to you, I am the Lord your God, and you shall not fear the Amorites uh, in the land who you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. They worshipped foreign gods. One of the things we've said in our and one of the things the Bible confirms, and one of the things everybody's life bears out, is that everybody is religious. Everybody's religious. This is the way David Foster Wallace said it, who interestingly enough is not a Christian. He says, here's something that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. And pretty much anything you worship is going to eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap in real meaning in life, then you're never going to have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual alert and you always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you're going to end up feeling weak and afraid. You'll need more power to overcome others and to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you're going to end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. David Foster Wallace is just describing what's going on in Israel's history over and over again, chasing after other gods. They worship foreign idols and so they're enslaved to them. Until they cry out. And Lord willing, what I hope happens for some of you and what happens for all of us Christians in our life is at times we find ourselves so locked in on something other than God and it has brought us into slavery. We thought it would give us life. And we cry out. And Israel cries out for deliverance. They cried out for help to the Lord. And this time normally God immediately sends a judge. But this time he sends a prophet first. He sends him a sermon before he sends a deliverer. A judge is a deliverer, by the way. And he sends a sermon, and here's the substance of that sermon. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt, and I brought you out of the house of bondage. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the hand of all who oppressed you, drove them out before you, and gave you the land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. What is the first seven-eighths of the sermon? Do you know how much I have loved you? You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose lands you will dwell. Here's the conclusion of his sermon. But you haven't obeyed my voice. I love you and you haven't listened to me. I delivered you from slavery in Egypt. I gave you land. You haven't obeyed my voice. I blessed you and you ignored my instruction. I loved you and you gave all your respect to these other foreign gods that can't give you life. I love you and I want you to walk in the way that you should go, but you didn't. We were made to have connection and instruction. And we see here and throughout the whole Bible, God is restoring the relationship between those two things as He's restoring our relationship with Him. That the one to whom we are ultimately made to connect is also the one from whom we learn wise and good living. And this is the story of God mending this relationship. And within this story, there's just a couple of lessons I want to focus on. Within the story of God mending our relationship with Him, and mending the relationship between love and teaching, the first thing that we learn is this. is In this story of Gideon, we learn how to go through confusing circumstances of life and be grounded people. You learn actually how to go through confusing, terrible circumstances of life and be a grounded person. Because God then calls this man to come and deliver Israel. He calls Gideon. 
And this man is afraid. He is not powerful. We're going to talk more about his character a little bit next week. But he's afraid. The, reason, the way we know he's afraid is he's threshing wheat in a wine press. You thresh wheat up on the mountainside to, so that the chaff will blow away. He's actually down in a hole. And the reason why is because we read about the Midianite oppression. They would come and just take everything. So it's interesting, there's kind of a wink-wink when it says, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. Because what he is doing as he is being spoken to by God for the first time is hiding in fear. So you catch the irony pretty quickly. This is not King Leonidas, this is not Decimus Maximus or whatever, this is not William Wallace. This is Gideon. He's hiding because he's afraid. It's been seven years, but they've been economically and politically oppressed by the Midianites. It's bad. And God says, the Lord is with you, man of valor. And Gideon responds exactly the way we would respond. And maybe a lot of times we've responded when we've been in situations similar, where the circumstances are horrible, where things are less than desirable. Gideon responds with saying, basically, this is what you call God with me? Hiding in a wine press so I can save some of my food for my family. This is God with me. Right? Because when our fathers talked about God, this is Gideon's language, when they talked about God with us, they talked about getting delivered from slavery in Egypt, being guided into the promised land. They talked about these wonderful deeds that you did, but now the Lord has forsaken us and we're oppressed by the Midianites. Is that what you mean when you say God is with me? And that's us, isn't it? Reading the stories of old, like reading the New Testament, maybe reading the Old Testament, and God doing these amazing things. And we're looking around at the gods of our age, and they're really persuasive, and we serve them, and we kind of love them and hate them at the same time, and we're trying really hard to believe that this God is with us, or at least consider that He could be with us, but where is He? Right? Where is all the crazy stuff going on? That's what Gideon's saying. I'm in a hole trying to manage my life. I've heard the stories of the powerful things you did in the past, and you're saying God is with me while I'm in a hole trying to manage my life. Is, where is He with me with my family falling apart, my dreams crumbling, and my loneliness, and my addiction, and my stress, and the psychological mess I live in, the cycles I live in? If you're the Israelites... And you're oppressed by the Midianites. You're like, where are you? You're saying you're with us? What is, I don't understand. What kind of God can you be if this is the way things are? That's the question. And that's really the heart of the matter. And this is the lesson that we're beginning to learn from Gideon is this. That what we're prone to do is take our circumstances and draw conclusions about God's character based on our circumstances. We look at our life and say, this is the way our life is. And I don't like it, and I don't understand it, and I didn't want this. Maybe it's things in your life, maybe it's things done to you. And you take your circumstances, and then you draw your picture of God based on your circumstances. Okay, if this is the way God orchestrated things, let me draw a picture of Him. I don't like that God anymore. And what trust is, and what faith is, is taking God's character... And processing your circumstances through what you know about Him. Is He good? Okay, He's good. I don't understand this, but I know that He's good. That's my fixed point. My fixed point's not my circumstances anymore. My fixed point is God's character, His promises, His wisdom. You've got to see the difference between these two things. 
Because one person goes through life and says, I know that God is good and wise, so I can trust Him in the midst of this. The fixed factor by which all other things interpreted is the love of God. Everything else is going to change. But the fixed factor is the love of God. And the other goes through life saying, I didn't get what I wanted, so I don't know what to think about God. And that latter situation, it happens in our house all the time. It's going to happen to you as a parent. Because I either discipline the girls or let them suffer due to a bad decision they make or don't give them what they want, right? They don't get to watch TV tonight because they got in a fight with their sister, right? What do they do in that situation? They draw conclusions about me instead of receive the instruction. They're like, Dad, you're horrible, right? Sometimes I let them suffer the consequences of their decision. This is, a, this is like a first world problem. I feel stupid saying this, but... I have Kindle. I bought Kindles for four, all four of our girls. You know how many children in our house now have a Kindle? One year later, one kid. We are three-fourths Kindleless in our house. And they're like, why are you not buying me another Kindle? I'm like, the worst possible thing I could do for you is buy you another Kindle if that's how you're going to engage in it, right? So I let them suffer sometimes. Sometimes I don't give them what they want. You know what my children want? They want 32 ounces of Sprite every hour on the hour. <laughs> And I'm not giving them what they want. The worst is, I don't give them what all their friends' parents give their friends, right? Apparently, we have the last four children in Silicon Valley that don't have an iPad, right? I don't know. Anyways, that's a whole other... I need need to blog about that one, but I don't even have a blog. And we have a joke in our, kind of in our house in those circumstances where we talk through it and they kind of get it after a while. And we kind of always have a joke of like, uh, they're like, Dad, they'll ask me for Sprite when they know they can't have 32 ounces of Sprite at 9 o'clock at night. And I'll be like, are you kidding me? And they just go, worst dad ever. <laughs> and it's a joke, but it's true. A lot of times... <laughs> Well, you can make an argument. Not great. But it is true, and we've all experienced this as children, where we draw a conclusion about our parents based on the circumstances they placed in our life, when in fact we refuse to see the wisdom of those circumstances. And so the fixed thing is not their love for us in our life. The fixed thing is our desires, and we're trying to make them accommodate our desires. And they actually learn and grow. We do as children... And when we do as God's people, when we draw conclusions about our circumstances, not based on our desires and how we think it should be, but draw conclusions about our circumstances based on the fixed point of God's covenant faithfulness and His love and His grace and His wisdom. And we say, I know these things are true. I know these things are true. So how do I begin to process this? What would it look like if you trusted that God was good, if that was your fixed point? This is... We can get coffee and talk about your situation. And it's hard to sort through all all of our situations, undoubtedly. This is what would happen. You'd probably... You'd definitely have a lot of difficult circumstances in your life. But you'd become a wise, unanxious, kind, and forgiving person in the process. We're like, I know God is good. I know that. And you're, maybe you don't believe this. 
but I promise you it's true. That's all I got. Becoming a wise, unanxious, kind, and forgiving person is way, 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 way better than anything else you're dreaming of. Anything. Being a 70-year-old Starbucks barista who is wise, kind, forgiving, and unanxious is going to be way better than your wildest dreams. So instead of basing our happiness on getting what we want, we need to base our happiness on God's character and His covenant love. When God in verse 7 through 10 addresses their crying out, He says, I'm going to need you to remember the reason He rehearses the history of His covenantal love for them. is, I need you to remember my love for you. I delivered you from Egypt. I led you out of slavery. I freed you from oppression. I gave you the promised land. I love you. You need to process your current situation under the Midianites in light of that. I love you, but you gave your hearts to the gods of the Amorites. You wouldn't listen to me and trust me, and I loved you, so I had to let this happen. I had to let you go kindleless for a year or longer, maybe seven years, right? If we're going to take biblical precedent. <laughs> We see God as actually showing us His love and and discipline together. And what discipline is, is feedback on how we're living. Right? Louis C.K. thinks he has all these problems with the God of the Bible, and yet he always continually confirms the God of the Bible all the time and God's instincts. I don't know if y'all have seen his bit on cell phones, but he talks about why he won't let his children have cell phones. Have y'all seen this? He says this, I think these things are toxic, especially for kids. They don't look at people when they talk to them, and they don't build empathy. And kids are mean. They look at a kid and they go, you're fat. And then they see the kid's face scrunch up, and they go, ooh, that doesn't feel good when I make that person do that. That's a good thing. So Lucy K says, I'm not going to give them a cell phone, because when they write you're fat, and there's no feedback, no repercussion, right? They just go, mmm, that was fun, I like that. Right? We need feedback on how we're living. That's good parenting. God's a good father. And that's what discipline is. That's what the Midianite oppression is. That's what a lot of things that goes on in Judges is. God is a good parent. He wants us to see and experience the world scrunching its face at us. When we say, you're fat. Right? In our sin, the, the warp that's happening is our soul scrunching its face at us. That's the Midianite oppression. Some of us are experiencing the consequences of sin right now, and we haven't connected the dots. We don't get it. We're in sin, and my soul, or my friends, or my family, or the world is scrunching its face at us. That sick, disconnected feeling. That's God's loving, fatherly discipline. Discipline. Maybe you're holding on to one sin and you're feeling, I always feel like an outsider when I'm around God's people. And it's not because they're not welcoming. But it's because it's your soul scrunching its face. Maybe school and career and dreams have captured your hearts and your anxiety and your fear is your soul scrunching its face at you. Saying, oh, that's not right. That's God at work in you. That anxiety is His gift to you. You need to respond to it by resting. My children haven't gotten what they wanted, and they ask me and Elizabeth, and we, when we say, we're not giving you 32 ounces of Sprite at 9 p.m., and they pitch a fit, what we say is we do exactly what Israel, God does in 7 through 10. We say, sweetheart, we changed your diaper. We touched your poo-poo because we loved you, right? We fed you when you couldn't feed yourself. We gave you a house. We gave you warmth. We gave you clothes. We love you. 
you got to interpret this present Sprite situation in light of the 10 years of love we've shown you. And you need to look back and step back and say, like, you know what, I think mom and dad care for me. Maybe there's something to be learned here. That's how God equips us to go through disastrously confusing circumstances in life, to fixate on his character first and our circumstances second. He equips us for those circumstances. Secondly, he, we're actually shown how to experience God's love here too. He's teaching us. Suffering is not wasted in the kingdom of God. We get instruction from Him, but also we learn how to connect to His love. How to be sure that God is with us. Because that's the question. Well then, how do I know God? How do I know that you're with me? And that's Gideon's question. How do I know you're with me? How do I know this is God I'm talking to right now? That's Gideon's question. In verse 12, he calls him, he says, The Lord is with you, man of valor. And Gideon Gideon responds, verse 13, Really is the Lord with us? Verse 16, And I will be with you. And Gideon is like, Not unless I know that this is God. I'm not going to follow through on this unless I know this is God. So he asks for a sign. And they create this scenario where there's this wet meat and everything, and God brings fire, and it's this sign that confirms it, right? Miraculous sign. Absolutely incredible. And all of a sudden, from here on out, Gideon starts to operate differently. He's like, all right, this is, you meant business clearly, and this is God, and you're with us. Right? And he goes and he tears down the altars in the backyard to the, uh, to the false gods. And don't you kind of wish, all right, all right, here's the Bible stuff. Okay, God, just show me something. Give me one of these situations where you just set something on, in a controlled fire, controlled burn. <laughs> right? But it's clearly a miracle. How do I know the Lord is with me? That's our question. If we're going to process His instruction and His discipline this way, how do I know He loves me and cares for me? How do you know He loves His people, that He's with us? It's a huge question. And we have to answer that question to, enjoy, to engage the question, uh, sorry, the point we just made. To trust God in the midst of pain and suffering and frustration. I want to trust Him, and I don't want to judge Him, so how do I know that He is really with me? We wish we could have a Gideon situation, any of those Old Testament situations, burning bush kind of stuff, right? Here's what the Bible says in Hebrews 1. That Gideon, Moses, Isaiah, Ezekiel, all these people that had crazy situations where they received crazy signs, they would look at us and they would go, you're crazy, you don't need a sign. That's what they would say. They would be like, are you, why, why in the world are you asking for a sign? They would say, all the signs that we received were always pointing to the best and most trustworthy sign of all. In fact, not just a sign, but the thing itself, right? Signs are things that point past themselves. That's why Peter says in his letter, he's saying, everybody in the Old Testament who was writing and seeking and thinking and anticipating Jesus, that's what the signs were about. He's the sign that we have. This shall be a sign unto you. You'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Matthew 13, Jesus says, A crooked generation demands a sign, but I am the sign of Jonah. I'm going to show you I'm the sign of Jonah because I'm going to go down into death for three days, just like Jonah, and come back out. Luke 7, John the Baptist says, uh, sends messengers to Jesus and says, Who are you? Are you the one? And Jesus says, Tell them what you've seen. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers cleanse, the deaf hear, the poor have good news preached to them. The writer of Hebrews, which is a New Testament commentary on the Old Testament, starts their entire discourse on the Old Testament by saying, Long ago, 
God spoke to us in various ways at various times through the prophets. That means signs, burning bushes, prophecy, all that stuff. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. But now He has spoken to us by His Son, Jesus Christ. John calls Jesus the Word of God. The life of Jesus is the final and true sign. In fact, in some ways, not really a sign. He's the thing itself. That Peter tells us in 1 Peter that all the Old Testament guys were looking forward to and seeking out. They would say today, you have the historical testimony of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Why are you asking for a sign? That's what all our signs were about. That's like getting to the Disney World parking lot and then asking someone where Disney World is. They're like, you're there. We don't need signs. This is why if you come to RUF, we're not fascinated or talk about signs or, or, or care much for visions or dreams. This is how we know God is with us. This is how you know God's love. If we try to make knowledge of God's love, this subjective search for signs, then this is what's going to happen. Two things. First of all, everybody in the Old Testament is going to laugh at you when you get to heaven. Yes, that's going to happen. They're going to be like, oh my gosh, what were you thinking? And you're going to be humble enough to laugh too. It's okay. Don't worry. You're not going to be embarrassed. But in this life, you're going to get really frustrated and confused trying to interpret whether or not God's speaking to you or you ate a bad burrito. And it's going to be bizarre (laughs) and weird and rarely have anything to do with Jesus, which is what all signs are actually about. God's given us the sign we need. We have the historical record of the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, that He paid for our sins, that no one who trusts in Jesus will be charged in the court of God. God has nothing against you if you're in Jesus. We have the record. Paul even says, when he writes his letter in 1 Corinthians, he says, I saw the resurrected Lord. Here's some other people that saw the resurrected Lord. He was dead and we saw this guy alive again. There are 500 other people. You need to go and talk to them. That's what he tells the church at Corinth. What more powerful way could God convince us of His love? He died for us and rose for us. What more could God do? What greater sign could there possibly be? A burning bush pales in comparison to that. Moses would be like, I'd blow off the burning bush if I could see that, if I could hear about that, if I could read historical testimony about that. The New Testament says this is what the Old Testament was always about. What more could God do than offer a son for you? What more convincing thing could He do? What greater show of love could there possibly be? This is where Michael Scott's always helpful, right? Presents are the best way to show someone how much you care. It's this thing that you can point to and say, Hey man, I love you this many dollars worth. (laughs) This is the most dollars. Right? What more can God give? This is why the answer to how can we know God is with us is not to request another sign, but to read the thing to which all the signs have always been pointing, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. If you want to know God is with us, read history. That's the answer. That's what the Bible is, by the way. It's history. It's historical documents. It's historical narrative. It's not a fortune cookie. You need to read it to figure out what happened in the first century. One short lesson, then we're done. The last lesson we learn from this is that God is patient. We learn how to be equipped in difficult circumstances. We learn that God is with us. We learn how to be convinced of His love. And lastly, we learn that God's patient in His instruction. 
Because I know that even that five or ten minutes I'm talking about God's love for us, that doesn't resolve everything. We're still suspicious. We're still questioning. I am. And Gideon does. But this is what's also cool about the Gideon narrative, and it's going to flow into next week. God is patient with our temperamental hearts and our slow to kind of come around hearts. Gideon obeys God and starts to trust Him, but he's still afraid. He goes at night to tear down the idols because he's still scared. Right? He's still hiding. And the whole Gideon story is more evidence that God is a good and patient father. He's bound himself in love to his children. He instructs his children in the way that we should go. And even when we respond faint-heartedly and half-heartedly with lots of doubt and still afraid, but we try to move forward in repentance and turning to the Lord in obedience just a little bit, he's patient and he's slow to anger. And the hardest part about being a parent is realizing that just because you said something, your kid doesn't get it yet. I, I, don't, I don't understand how many times I have to say you can't put white, wet towels on the floor and explain mildew and explain all this other kind of stuff, right? But I say it over and over. Like, how many times should you have to say that to a kid, right? Once. Okay, apparently not. We're three years into the wet towel kind of debacle, right? <laughs> and it's infuriating, Right? God's got lessons for us. Not about wet towels and floor. I think you might care about that too, but that's another conversation. That God's like, hey, y'all, you can't live for man's approval. And we're like, what do you mean? He's like, no, no, you can't live for man's approval. It'll kill you. You'll be insecure all the time. You're like, oh, that kind of makes sense, right? You'll never know if people really like you or not because they can change their opinion about you all the time. You'll never be sure if you meet their standards or not. It'll actually make you an elitist and an oppressor. It'll cause you to stratify humanity and judge people and grade people out, whether they're fit enough or good-looking enough or smart enough or hardworking enough. And, and we're like, wow, that's really persuasive. You're right. We really shouldn't live for man's approval. We all get the lesson now, right? It should be that easy. What are we all going to do this weekend? Be terrified about what people think about us. The good thing is, God's far more patient than me. He doesn't lose his cool when he's taught us something one time, and it clearly makes sense to us. Right? He's patient with us, and he's showing Israel, and he's showing us, I love you, and as a good father, I want to instruct you in fruitful and flourishing living, and you're going to muck it up a bunch. But I love you too much to abandon you. So we're going to do this lesson again tomorrow. He loves you. He longs for you to live rightly. And he doesn't give up on his people. Let's pray.